Hey guys, and thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of the Gene Panel Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about GMOs. Uh, but we, before we start talking about them directly, um, we should first mention that we've actually been manipulating genetics for a very long time. Um, for example, in our first episode, we, we talked about how um, we've, we've been selectively breeding sheep, for example, to try to pick out the best traits for the offspring. Um, however, currently, we can directly modify the genes themselves rather than just malip- manipulate them um, by creating GMOs. So GMOs stands for Genetically Modified Organisms, um, which is basically any living thing um, and not necessarily something that we eat that has been well, genetically altered. Um, so how exactly did we get from selective breeding to the complicated and awesome DNA technology responsible for making GMOs today? Yeah, so, well, it's actually believed that dogs were the, the first animals to have been selectively bred, and this was uh, East Asia, where they would take wild wolves and they would domesticate them. And so plants were similarly domesticated, right? So, you know, we even talked about in our first episode, again, how, um, how uh, Mendel was working with these pea plants. And so you can imagine that there were other uh, non-scientists that were working with plants in order to domesticate them and get their best traits. Right. You can imagine how like in, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, you can imagine how like in ancient civilizations near like river valleys and such, where people start, you know, finally planting and cultivating, they're they're, they're seeing how "Hmm, if I breed these two plants together, we get more grain. And so that's basically the idea of, of domesticating plants. Exactly. And so that's been evolving as a science in and of itself. And so fast forward, you know, like in the 20th century, uh, you have the 1973 publication called Construction of Biologically Functional Bacterial Plasmids in Vitro. So essentially in vitro means not in a living organism. So this is in test tube. And so this was a publication by Kun Chang, Boyer and Helling, whereby they successfully engineered the first ever genetically uh, modified organism. Now, this was a bacteria. So what they did is that they used restriction enzymes to generate these recombinant plasmids um, that carried an antibiotic resistance genes that was not found in the bacteria that they would give it to. So essentially, you take the bacteria that has the antibiotic resistance gene, um, you would clone it out, and then you would use restriction enzymes, which are essentially molecular scissors, to insert that gene into that plasmid, And then you take that plasmid and you put it into a bacteria that doesn't otherwise have that um, uh, antibiotic resistance gene. And then they found that they could actually make that new bacteria resistant. So that was the first actual instance that was publicated um, in order for uh, whereby you generated a GMO. Yeah. And after the development of this technology, there was a lot of conversation in the scientific community about what exactly are the consequences of genetically modifying, especially in regards to human health and the ecosystem, right? You can imagine if, um, for example, this specific bacterial strain, what if it's pathogenic, right? What if it can harm human health and and it got loose and now it's resistant to antibiotics, right? That'd be a a big problem. So there was a a voluntary uh, moratorium, so basically just a, a, a brief halt in this in this area of research and it was conducted in in 1974 and, and 1975 in um, the Asilomer Conference um, of 1975, and it was uh, they all came together to place regulations on on regarding the safety and and contamination, like I was saying before. And then in 1980, um, 
the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that scientists can finally patent genetically modified organisms. Yeah, and, and so I should right. add that this, this, this is a pretty big thing, right? So imagine mm -hmm. going from a moratorium, which tells everyone, okay, pause your modifications that you're making to these organisms, to now the Supreme Court saying that, hey, um, you're allowed to patent genetically modified organisms. And so that was a huge controversy, what it meant to even be able to patent something. Right. And so I believe Julian has the answer for how that was resolved. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying, this is crazy because the difference between the, the conference and the court ruling was just five years. That's, that's not that long if you think about it. But yeah, the, the case was resolved by ruling that a live human-made microorganism is patentable subject matter. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to patent an organism? Yeah, so it, it's, it's a pretty strange thing to think about, at least to me. So what I was thinking about, so for instance, there was a new plant discovered. So some natural plant that scientists discovered, um, and it creates some protein that is found to be a therapeutic, for instance, a cancer therapeutic. Would you be able to patent that plant or would you be patenting that, uh, that molecule? And of course, uh, based on the definition that Julian gave, it wouldn't be... Uh, you wouldn't be able to patent the plant because it's not human made, but maybe you can do something with the protein, right? Right. So basically, for example, you could clone that gene, uh, that um, the gene responsible for making that new protein into another organism, uh, like a bacteria, because this allows you to, to, to clone it and, and basically mass produce it, right? And this was actually the case with transgenic insulin, uh, which was patented and approved in 1982 by the FDA. And it basically became... Um, known as a drug called humulin, which is basically um, bacteria-producing human insulin, right, to, to, uh, as a therapeutic for, for diabetes. And to date, uh, more than 130 recombinant proteins have been approved by the U.S. FDA for clinical use. So a good amount at this and, point. Yeah, and I should add that recombinant essentially in this context means that you insert it into a new organism. So right. for instance, that bacteria has recombinant humulin. Mm -hmm. Now, these, you know, these medications or these therapeutics that people have been using for a long time now, particularly insulin, haven't really been in the spotlight in the media, the mainstream media, when it comes to GMOs. Well, at least right now, anyways, right? Like, at least currently. At least right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things we don't consider GMOs that actually are, and they're in the spotlight, but, you know, maybe we'll talk about it later in the episode. But the main focus that we have for today... Um, is these is this controversial application of GMO technology in food production and in consumption? And to be fair, I I honestly find that to be a fair like a fair controversy in the sense that I understand why people would be afraid of of GMO like technology in, in regards to food consumption, right? Because now you're you're actually eating it, right? And it's in your body, so you'd be scared if it has any type of adverse effects, right? But but this is what we're going to focus on. Yeah, and I think for us to discuss even like why it's a valid controversy, that, that, that would be an entire episode of its own whereby we talk about, you know, this, this trust between the public and, you know, um, policymakers and the scientists. Why would the public have to trust something that a scientist says? Um, and how do scientists get the public to believe uh, something that they say? So this is something that uh, maybe we can talk about later. Oh, yeah, it's um, a I good... Some, yeah, something like vaccine hesitancy is something that's mm. very big. Yeah. Um, and yeah, for sure. Right. 
So going back to the, the GMO food technology, so the first food crop to ever be approved for commercial production that was genetically modified was, um, forgive me if I, if I butcher this name, but I, I believe it, it was Calgene's Flavor Saver Tomato. <laughs> it's got a pretty catchy, uh, catchy yeah, root to it, Flavor Saver. And it was uh, approved in 1994. And these tomatoes were modified to include an additional DNA sequence that inhibited the production of a natural tomato protein. So this tomato pro- this tomato protein is no longer being expressed, and this actually has the effect of increasing the firmness and also extending the shelf life of the flavor saver tomato. So now you know it can last longer in in grocery shelves, and, and therefore make um, make uh, make them more money, basically, right? Wait. So what? So what would be the good thing about the tomato actually? producing this protein that decreases its firmness and it decreases its shelf life it's pretty weird yeah it's a little odd yeah yeah and then later on uh, just a year later um the first pesticide producing crop was developed and it was called bt corn right and so for anyone who doesn't know right pesticide is just any type of of, of chemical that that can basically prevent any type of pests like insects and such from, from eating crops. Like and uh, right, right. Um, right, so it's called BT corn. And BT stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a hard one. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the name of the bacteria. Um, it's a bacteria that's found in soil all over the world and it produces a crystal like protein or cry protein which selectively kills insects. And what I mean by selectively kills insects is that it doesn't kill anything else except certain insect species that would otherwise eat the, the corn, right? Wait, so are these crystal, I don't know mm-hmm. an answer, but are these crystal-like proteins just a class of proteins or is it a yeah. specific protein? It's a class of proteins. It's a, it's a class of, there's different types of cryoproteins, but generally, um, so like one cryoprotein could kill one uh insect species another cryoprotein could could kill another insect species basically well at least in yeah right okay and these proteins aren't toxic to humans so if we were to eat the bt corn we don't have to worry about the cryoprotein killing us right and this is because our digestive system doesn't have cells that have receptors which the cryoprotein recognizes so the cry elaborate yeah yeah i was gonna say we'll elaborate more on this when we get to the con section yeah and the advantage section right yeah go on yeah, basically just like the cryoprotein can't act on our cells because um, our cells don't even recognize the protein. And there are also examples of modified foods that increase nutritional value. Um, there's this uh, type of rice that has been called golden rice that you may or may not have heard of. Uh, golden rice is just modified rice, um, and it's modified to produce beta keratin, which is not normally present in rice, right? And beta-keratin gets converted to vitamin A in our bodies. And vitamin A is very important because it helps with, with uh, maintaining healthy skin, and it also boosts our immune system, and also helps with vision. And it was developed in 1999 as a solution to combat vitamin A deficiency in countries whose diet largely depends on rice or other micronutrient-poor carbohydrate foods. And, and, this I is, should, and I should right. also add that vitamin A is essential, so our body mm. can't manufacture it. So it has right. to be in our diet, which is why this was such such an important uh, thing mm-hmm. uh, when it came to golden rice. Yeah, and also just the, the, the vitamin A deficiency itself 
leads to blindness in a lot of children. And it also can make us prone to other infections uh, like uh, diarrhea infections or measles because, again, vitamin A helps boost our immune system. Um, and now this, um, you probably haven't heard too much of this recently, and it honestly hasn't had much, um, I guess you could say, data. Like it hasn't been rolled out in too many countries, even that was made in 1999. And this is because it's been held back for many years due to anti-GMO criticism as well as international government regulations. Uh, there was uh, a couple regulations that um, prohibited a couple scientific procedures, basically prohibiting any scientific procedures that could put, put uh, potentially put us at risk. And since at the time, um, you know, we, we can't really know if it, if it has a risk because we, we don't have any long-term studies, then, you know, this was held back. Yeah. So now given that we've talked about this history, why don't we go ahead and speak more about what a GMO is, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, we already went over. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we already went over what it stands for. But you know, what what else can we say? Yeah. Well, again, basically they're just living be living beings that have had their genetics modified in some way, right? Such as with the plasmid transformation that that Ali spoke of earlier. Like just to put it in like this in simple simple words, the creation of GMO just involves any type of transfer, insertion, or deletion of a desired DNA segment into a target organism. And that's all it is. You're just introducing something that, that the organism doesn't naturally have, right? It's not innate. You're introducing it or deleting yeah. something that is already there, as was and, the case with the, the flavor yeah. saver tomatoes, right? Exactly. And you might see this terminology used maybe in future episodes or in maybe um, science articles and whatnot. But this is the idea of endogenous versus exogenous sequences. Mm -hmm. So endogenous is something that, like Julie mentioned, um, that organism already had it. It's natural to it. It inherited it from its father and mother. Mm -hmm. But when you think about, you know, an exogenous sequence, it's something that it never had, but we've uh, artificially added it to that organism's genome. Yeah. And the modification itself doesn't necessarily have to relate to a protein coding gene, right? It can also, we can also add a regulatory piece of DNA. Um, and then this regulatory piece of DNA can have other indirect consequences, like increasing the expression of, of another gene. Uh, but more often than not, it's it's the protein coding gene that, that's targeted. Because that's the simplest thing. Um, mm -hmm. When you target regulatory sequences, that regulatory sequence doesn't just regulate one gene. It could be regulating a whole network of genes. And so by affecting that, you're essentially affecting a whole network of uh, expression patterns in that sense. Absolutely. So now, when it comes to GMOs, when we're looking at animals, this essentially just involves these alterations. So, for example, homologous recombination, which we talked about in our CRISPR episode, CRISPR itself, um, uh, in these embryonic stem cells, right? So these uh, cells that come from the embryo. So after fertilization, the embryo starts to develop. Um, and then you insert these embryonic stem cells uh, into the foster mother. And this is typically in the form of a blastocyst. Uh, which is just the structure that's formed in the early development of mammals. Um, and this was actually done in 1974 by Runold, uh, Rudolf Janisch to generate the first GMO animal, right? So this was a mouse. And although it was not using CRISPR, it was through recombination methods. But, you know, GMOs were started to being used in the lab at right. that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then in plants, um, there have been two methods for 
genetically modifying them. Firstly, there's this thing which I find to be the cooler one. Unfortunately, it's not as used because it's not very efficient, but it's called the gene gun method. And it's a method where you coat... Uh, by the way, you should yeah. search up gene gun. It actually looks really cool. <laughs> it does look yeah. cool. So basically what it is, is it's you're firing um, just like a, a, a pellet of, of, me- of a metal. So it could be gold, um, platinum, any sort of metal. And you basically coat it with the DNA of interest and you shoot it into the plant cell. So it can penetrate the cell wall and then the DNA makes its way inside the cell. The problem with this is that the DNA can make its way doesn't necessarily make its way into the nucleus, whereby it gets uh, transcribed and made into protein. It can also just stay in the cytoplasm where it can get degraded, for example. Uh, so what gets used more often is is placing the DNA fragment or gene of interest in a circular plasmid, as I think Ali mentioned again before yeah. with, with the bacteria. And just, again, just going over it real quick, it's the plasmid is inserted inside a bacteria and then the bacteria can mass produce the product of interest contained within the plasmid. And then the plasmid can also contain a marker so that we know that, oh, okay, this plant has this, uh, or sorry, this bacteria has this new gene, right? So it can be, again, like Ali mentioned before, it can be like antibiotic resistance to see if, if the bacteria has received the, the plasmid. The bacteria then is transferred to a single plant cell which is then grown in the presence of, of plant hormones to promote their growth and also in the presence of the antibiotic so that only the genetically modified plants can grow. Oh, so this is just directly inserting the bacteria into the plant cell? Yep, yep. So, because I remember, um, I think this was when we were taking uh, one of our microbiology courses, mm-hmm. how you can take uh, plant viruses or maybe even bacteria oh, i think it was probably right. viruses and you, then you can have them shoot there so you would take a plant virus you would put inside it you know whatever exogenous sequence that you wanted to have mm-hmm. and then you infect the plant or the plant cell and then you would get insertion of that exogenous sequence into, into the, the plant, plant. Uh, yeah 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 you could also use plant viruses for sure yeah so yeah now we've kind of gone over what what gmos basically are and, and how they are made now we can go on to talk about the 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 meat of the episode. I would say, like, well, what are the what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And first, we're going to talk about uh, some of the cons and mostly why these cons scare people. Because I think a lot of the time, or at least I found myself, uh, or at least I found when I was researching, there's a lot of anti-GMO sentiment out there, and um, yeah, a lot of people are scared. Um, so first, let's address the genetically modified elephant in the room, I guess you could say. <laughs> and that would be, is, is are GMOs dangerous to human health? Well, to give you a short answer, not so far. Not that we've seen so far anyway. So a lot of people claim that we don't have data on the long-term effects of GMOs. And this is true to some extent. So for instance, if let's say some company makes a GMO right now, right? Mm-hmm. Then we don't have data but i mean i'll get into how even gmos are made are regulated to even be placed on the market Mm -hmm. but you know gmos have been a lot have been around for a long time so to say that we don't have data is not entirely true but obviously there can be unexpected side side effects uh with the introduction of any new crop variety whether they're gmos or not 
Yeah, I I would say that a lot of the time when when people are cautious about long-term effects, and this isn't just in GMOs, this can go for, for example, uh, antibiotics and drugs and whatnot, Mm -hmm. or or vaccines and such. Sometimes it's hard to to quantify exactly what long-term means, like how long is that exactly? And especially with GMOs, I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily know too much, or at least the public. You know, you, you could use that argument for, you know, decades, to be honest, right? And maybe it doesn't even have to do with, you know, a, a, a temporal argument. Maybe someone's just concerned about, okay, maybe there is long-term data. I still don't trust it because, mm-hmm. well, let's say I have this health history of diseases X, Y, and Z, you know, but right. the average person that you looked at in the study of 10 years on this GMO didn't have my diseases. So how will this GMO affect me specifically as opposed to the average person? So it, it could be a very personal level science for some people. Mm-hmm. And that's something else we'll have to get into later. Um, but what I want to say is that it's important to note that this, you know, this idea of not having data is not something that's ignored because there have been a plethora of studies done on GMOs that take a look at these long-term side effects. And so far, nothing harmful has happened to humans. And in the video, in in the podcast description, we'll link one of these uh, studies. And I'm sure if you search up any of these studies, uh, you can find, you know, more updated ones. Um, And so, again, in terms of regulation, one cannot simply plant a GMO seed they got from a scientist buddy and expect to sell it once it's ready. There's a long regulatory process that takes place. So let's look at the U.S. because that's where most of the GMOs come from. Mm -hmm. There are three agencies that actually regulate the safety of GMOs. So starting with the Food and Drug Administration, so the FDA, like uh, Julian mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And these guys assess the safety of proposed GMOs as foods. So they're looking at its effects on humans as as we consume them. Um, Next, you have the Environmental Protection Agency. So as you can imagine, uh, they assess the environmental, environmental impact. So you can see that research doesn't only go into the consumer aspect of me eating you know some bt corn but mm-hmm. also how does that bt corn you know what what's its dynamics with the environment is it safe for it mm-hmm. and finally you're looking at the department of agriculture and this is going to assess the impact of a gmo crop on other native uh, crops and plants and as you can imagine such regulations don't happen overnight mm-hmm. right they can take years to come to a conclusion yeah exactly but again um as for the two decades that they have been out on the market, GMOs have failed to produce any type of occurrences pertaining to human health issues. Yeah, there's many prestigious science and health institutions, including the National Academy for Science, which is a very prestigious organization in the U.S. that covers a lot of scientific and technology topics. And they've all mostly concluded that GMOs are safe for human consumption. And in a lot of cases... The, the genetically modified plants themselves don't differ too much from normal plants, right? They only differ in in the one or, or maybe two genes that, that you inserted. And, yeah. of course, these genes have been studied, right? Like, it's not that we're putting in random genes into plants, right? We're being like, okay, so this gene produces this protein. Is this protein safe for human consumption? Let's study that. Okay, it is. Then we can transfer it. And then, again, you know, go through the regulations that Ali mentioned, and then it makes its way as, as a GMO. Yeah. So, well, then the question becomes, what about pesticides, right? So these, as Julian mentioned early on in the episode, um, well, if they're, you know, inherent to the bacteria uh, into the plant now, so, well, 
now inherent before they were exogenous well if they're intracellular that means the plant's making it itself um as opposed to something that's you know because uh, typically what i think of when i think of pesticides is some plane comes and just sprays these plants mm-hmm. with this pesticide to kill off any plant uh kill off any pests but now the plant is producing its own pesticide so if i buy an apple right a gmo apple that has you know pesticide that makes its own pesticide i won't be able to wash it off now off the surface um well that comes down to physiological differences right so some things that are dangerous to insects are not necessarily dangerous for us so consider how a dog can't eat chocolate but we as humans you know sometimes we can't get enough of it Mm -hmm. so (laughs) really really when we think about pesticides is that they're meant to be harmful to pests, not humans. And again, because of physiological reasons. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, another con that is mentioned pretty frequently is the effect of cross-pollination of GMOs. So, you know, for example, let's say you have two neighboring farmers, right? Let's say one farmer is is planting GM crops and the other farmer is just producing the natural ones. Well, what could end up happening is through natural pollinators like like bees or, or even the wind, right? You, you can accidentally pollinate the neighboring farm. So now that the both farms now have um, some GM crops in them. And this could yeah. be a huge issue, especially for, um, again, the, the regulation aspect of it, right? Because you could imagine how, for example, it's hard to tell for the other farmer who's making the natural crops that some of his crops are now you know, genetically modified. He has no no real way of knowing until he finally ships out the crops or, or whatever food he's making um, for, you know, t- to be examined by, by all these organizations. And what could end up happening is they could say, oh, well, um, your product is not what's being advertised. It's actually been genetically modified. And that could cost that farmer a lot of money, for example. Yeah. Or even maybe, you know, somehow some GMO crop, you know, it it has a bad interaction with the natural version of the plant mm, and mm-hmm. that may cause you know a hybrid of a gmo and a normal crop to die out you know and that could be another issue but so two examples uh, that you know farmers can use to prevent this idea of gene flow or this cross-pollination is that you know maybe they could close off your gmo crops and isolate them so put them you know in some closure and although that could have issues of its own so if your crop needs to be you know exposed to the outside air then you can use terminator seeds so um the wikipedia page uh for genetic use restriction technology talks about this but essentially terminator seeds um prevent successive generations of this plant from growing so essentially the plants are infertile and the seeds don't really work beyond that and i guess you can appreciate how expensive that might be to farmers which could be yet another con for for using GMOs. Mm-hmm. And you've probably heard this problem in terms of, of pathogens and bacteria, this problem of antibiotic resistance. This could be the case for, for GMO crops as well, right? Kind of how I mentioned earlier when 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 we're making the 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 transgenic plant, right? The GMO plant and then we're using bacteria. And sometimes we use the antibiotic resistance as a marker for the bacteria. Well this could have the effect of making nearby pathogens also resistant to the antibiotic. And, you know, this could potentially greatly harm us. Um, Another similar problem, though it's a bit 
less of a problem in my opinion is pesticide resistance and, and it works in a very similar manner again we, we can engineer these plants to, to be resistant to pesticides and normally repeated use of a pesticide over time naturally leads to the development of pesticide resistance in some populations you, you could imagine how not only not only um, well now now we're accelerating this resistance because we're ma- we're we're making the plant produce the pesticide itself right um, which could be a problem for for um, for for killing weeds and and such exactly and one final comment that I wanted to bring up and this is something that I actually didn't uh, know or would never have thought of unless I heard it but according to science author Mark Minus. Um, the GMO opposition also brings up the idea that um, developing countries may uh, may uh, be introduced to GMOs as a method of being colonized by these large multinational companies. And so, you know, I never knew that that could be a thing, but, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's very plausible, right? I think it, it kind of ties back to what you were mentioning earlier of, of one of the other topics we could cover with, with the, the public being mistrustful of, of scientific institutions and such. Yeah. It, it's kind of similar in the sense that I find that people could be scared of, of biotechnology companies, right? These companies that have patents on specific GMOs. If you think about it, it's, it's kind of like they have a monopoly on that product, right? So let's say this this GMO is, is greatly sought after in, in other countries. Well, they basically corner the market and they could basically charge whatever they want almost, which is pretty yeah. scary. And that could go for, this is even, this is particularly scary because it's it's something we're consuming, right? And again, I think that ties back to people being scared of biotech companies because biotech companies could develop uh, certain technologies that that greatly impact human health. And you can imagine how it could scare someone if, if a certain company has, a, a, again, a monopoly on this product that could save lives, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And mm-hmm. yeah, there was a whole, not not pertaining to GMOs, but you know, any sort of medication, if, if one company owns the patent to that, they can make it extremely overpriced and only the rich could afford it. So that's that's an entire other issue of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now that we've talked about the cons and sort of raised objections to these cons, why don't we talk about the advantages? And to start off, we talked about how, you know, uh, in back in East Asia, um, people would take wild wolves and domesticate them into dogs or even... Um, takes two crops where they want the best quality and they would mate the crops with the best qualities to get uh you know to improve on those uh traits to get like improved Um, yield you know exactly yeah but the issue with selective breeding is that you know well not not an issue but it's just a more natural process but it targets many traits and you're not uh you're not guaranteed to get the outcome that you want so in a sense, it's almost random, but there's a process behind it, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So you're not selectively going in with molecular scissors or whatever com- uh, technology you're using to change a single trait uh, in, in, the, in the context of a GMO. Right, right. And now when it comes to crops, there are a lot of advantages for both farmers and consumers. So for farmers, the advantage is, is pretty simple to understand, right? So GM plant, uh, genetically modified plants can, can repel pests, which you know lowers the need for, for pesticides. And also um, you can modify plants so that uh, you get more yield, which could decrease the cost of, of production and you can just make more crops. Yeah, and, and the decreased use of pesticides is not only good for the environment, but also their own health. And I'll describe this in a case study um, 
uh, when we're talking about advantages, but yeah, it's also good for the environment and their own health. Mm -hmm. Additionally, some um, genetically modified plants are resistant to herbicides, which facilitates weed control. And for consumers, this um, what ends up happening is because farmers are able to make more crops, this reduces the cost for consumers. And kind of what we mentioned with golden rice, we could also have uh, more nutritional value in our food products. And some of these points also extend to livestock as well, not just plants and crops. Exactly. Um, and although this advantage I'm about to state is not related to consumerism, mm -hmm. but GMOs have aided greatly in answering many research questions. So in a lab, you're using these model systems like the fruit fly, like the mouse, um, in order to answer these questions. And oftentimes you would genetic you genetically modify these um these models in order to answer certain questions so for instance in a fruit fly you would add some gfp protein to localize you know some expression pattern or something mm -hmm. um and again this helps you know aid a lot of research i know this is done a lot in, in mouse studies as well where you uh, you have engineered mouse models that uh, are can be mutant for a certain thing so that uh, we can study uh tumor growth, uh, you know, which has implications in developing uh, therapeutics for cancer, right? Exactly. Um, and then now going back to, you know, GMOs, we can help with poverty. And, you know, this is not something that a lot of people may think about, but in many underdeveloped countries, um, agriculture doesn't thrive and that hurts the economy. So according to Ivanich and Martin uh, in a paper in 20, from 2018, Productivity growth in agriculture has the largest impact of any sector on poverty reduction, and that's roughly twice that of manufacturing. So, wow. you know, growing yeah, it, it's pretty twice. insane, and you know, not a lot of people may think of it. Uh, so, growing crops that have greater yield because of you know their resistance and their ability to grow due to some you know transgenic uh, uh, modification. Has, yeah, yeah. It can help with both poverty and malnourishment, so food poverty, um, because of crops that last longer, you know, like flavor savers. So some family can, you know, purchase, uh, I'll, I'll raise an issue, like I really love strawberries, but mm -hmm. they, they rot so quickly. But imagine that, you know, some family buys a basket of strawberries, and now the strawberry lasts, you know, let's say three weeks instead of, you know, four or five days after you've purchased, purchased it. So this can be very big. And now right. let's go, yeah, discuss the case study that I mentioned earlier. And this is from Bangladesh. So it's situated there. So in an article by Mark Linus, so again, that science author, he describes how in 2013 and 2014, there were 20 farmers that adopted a new GMO eggplant called bt brinjal so this is bt the same idea as julie mentioned earlier as the bacteria and brinjal is just the specific eggplant and this was meant to be pest resistant and the pest in this case is something known as a shoot borer um and so the success of this new gmo eggplant saw the number of farmers that used it rise from rise to over twenty thousand in a span of four years twenty thousand from twenty no no from 20 farmers uh -huh. to over 20,000. Right, right, right. That's crazy. In four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, wow. Yeah. Because of why it was so successful. And the reason why it was so successful is that you're using less pesticide, um, right? Because of your use of less pesticide, these uh, GMO eggplants resulted in a 650% increase in returns, right? Because 
using these uh, GMOs was much cheaper than purchasing pesticide. And not to, not to forget to mention that, you know, you get more yield, um, which leads to uh, improvement in the quality of life for these farmers who often lived in poverty. Um, so another side effect that, you know, I really appreciate a lot is the reduced environmental impact and the impact on the human health um, of using pesticides. So it's reported that eggplant farmers would spray up to 84 times per growing season. And each growing season is 100 to 120 days. So you can imagine these guys are doing that three times a year. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of pesticides they're using that they're exposing to themselves, to the environment, and a lot of pesticide that they have to purchase. So the ultimate argument is that such benefits that are granted by GMOs simply outweigh the objections thrown against it. Of course, that isn't to say that, you know, GMOs are infallible and that we shouldn't, you know, criticize them in any way, shape or form. Right. We right. should continue to hold strong regulations, always look at them, be wary of potential risks and not overlook anything that may come up in, you know, trials of these GMOs. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's probably pretty obvious at this point, or at least at least for me, in, in my case, that. I believe myself to be a, a, a pretty big proponent of GMO technology just because of its vast number of advantages. And again, I feel like a lot of the cons that we mentioned do have solutions or are just unpro- have just been unproven. But again, like Ali was saying, that, that there are issues that I acknowledge. It's not like I think they're amazing as they are right now. Um, but the GMO technology itself has been proven to be safe. I think the technology is fine. I'm more concerned of, of how how they're implemented, right? Like this whole issue of, of cross-pollination and and the idea of multinational companies, though, you know, this is a little bit more speculative. I do agree that it could be a, a pretty big potential problem, right? And the solution isn't, again, to just ban the, the technology itself, right? But we have to take steps towards optimizing the regulations, like Ali was saying, um, for example, uh, you know, providing pro- providing us with all the all the nutritional and farming benefits without inhibiting the scientific work, while also protecting farmers from economic issues due to pressure from the the larger uh, GMO companies. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I completely agree with you on that, and I think that you know there's a lot of potential in GMOs and in genetics in general, and that's what. I know personally, that's why I gravitated towards genetics, mm-hmm. given its you know vast potential. And I know you mentioned that that's why you did too. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this is all very exciting times. And so, you know, using genetics as tools to improve the quality of life and all these different aspects that are issues in our world and how we can solve them using genetics is quite amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I guess in terms of, of future directions for the technology itself. Um, yeah. So far, there aren't too many of the there aren't too many GMOs that improve nutritional value, like the golden rice. Um, even again, golden rice itself hasn't been rolled out to many areas. Um, so I guess I, I could I could definitely see um, developing ways to improve nutritional benefit of a lot of foods. Though like, again, this is a bit of a challenge considering how like, we have to do a bunch of studies and whatnot. But I do see that as as a future direction. And also, not only in improving nutritional value, but you could use GMOs in, in other aspects as well. I think, I remember, Ali, you mentioned in, 
was it i think it was the first episode the the whole um was it the beyond meat project yeah yeah i thought that was pretty cool right like you know giving yeah. giving a, a vegan burger a more you know a, like authentic hamburger taste Easier right taste. yeah I, I, like <laughs> right right yeah. so yeah, yeah the again yeah like the the potential is 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 humongous right so We'll see. We'll see where it goes. And yeah. I guess, uh, do you have anything else to add, Ali? Not really. I mm-hmm. just like to thank you guys for tuning in to yet another episode of the Jeep Panel Podcast. Um, and you know, make sure to tune in next time where we talk about something else that's very exciting. Thank you all, and see you next time. Bye.